0: Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We're here in the studio to record a different kind of podcast. Wisconsin Lutheran College, like all universities, have suspended face-to-face education due to the spread of the coronavirus. Online education is the norm for a while. So Wade and I, and today Dr. Brown, have decided to team up and record some audio for our students in lieu of classroom lectures. It's not ideal, but we think our discussions will be better than hastily made videos in which students have to look at our ugly mugs as we drone on without the benefit of a live audience. If you are not a student, we hope this will still be beneficial to you as well. And although not an exact classroom experience with visuals and discussion, we hope that these episodes will give you an insight into the type of fun that we can have here at WLC. And so for your students, this is the COVID-19 online uh, learning experience. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast, Let the Bird Fly, and you'll get all of these things, and you can pick and choose the ones that are to your uh, to, to the class that you're taking right now. Um, if you are already a subscriber, we do apologize that all of a sudden you're, giving all, you're getting all this content. Uh, text every day, uh, content, I should say, every day, you can adjust your uh, feed to only get the, the regular episodes, and uh, uh, please don't unsubscribe, because that's important in the podcast world. With that, we are going to have Dr. Brown here, who is going to uh, talk to us about his class, Theology 228, Old Testament Prophets, with a nifty title for this episode, Profiting from the Prophets.
1: Yeah, that isn't really a name that I use with anybody else, but I, I stole it from somebody, I think, stream of consciousness, subconscious. Uh, let me give you a little bit of history. Um, it has always been a requirement for students to graduate to take some sort of intro class. Uh, it originally was more of an intro into scripture, and now it's an intro into theology in a broader way, and then to take at least one biblical studies class, and usually the biblical studies class will focus more intensely on a smaller part of scripture. There were about five or six classes like that back in the junior college curriculum when you guys were little boys and when you were still Catholic. And um, (laughs) and then about 88 or 1989 or so, I framed out the changes for a four year curriculum and had 10 courses in the junior year 300 level. And 301 through five was the Old Testament, 306 to 10 was the New Testament. They're uneven in length and in difficulty. So I would know and really understand that a lot of students would say, I'll take Genesis or I'll take Life of Christ or I'll take Pauline Epistles because this is more familiar and they might say more practical. But over the years, I taught Old Testament prophets for many years until Dr. Courtright came here and he taught them. And then when he retired, I took him back again. And I would freely say the first day of class, this is the hardest class of the 10 uh, uh, biblical studies classes and not because I want to be a a tough guy or whatever but because the whole nature of the information is so much more difficult and I says I can I can count down both hands the number of things that make it difficult it is first of all long it's so much of the Bible it is Hebrew poetry Um, there's a lot of redundancy here And in class, I I, now I sometimes show like four different headlines from 9-11 from four different newspapers and say, wouldn't you expect a lot of a lot of um, uh, similarity and even one paper copying from another? That's what you have here. (coughs) Um, In addition, there is so much history, even though it's not called a history class. And it's from history of the Old Testament, which is not particularly um, what should I say? It doesn't grab people a lot. My recollection of Old Testament history is that after Solomon, it really falls apart. And there aren't a lot of stories that, that grab you and you have to look three or four different places to find this stuff in the Bible. Um, and then add to that, that after you went through the whole process for years as a kid, and some of you as an adult, learning to recite the books of the Old Testament in order. I'm sure you still got some new students in 105. They are thrilled to be able to do that. At the start of the semester, they look at you like, you're going to make me say those names in order. And then to tell them, well, they're actually not in order. And we have to rearrange them. And there's a lot more to learn about them. And then I, I think the the major, if you want to call it a failure, of many Christian churches and individual Christians is that there's so much effort in having to learn the prophets in any kind of a structured and organized way that they give up and just pull out the parts that are about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the prophet, like a book like Jeremiah, is so disorganized. I mean, I think Baruch just kind (laughs) of put all of Jeremiah's preaching notes in a bag and wrote them down as they came out. And I said, imagine having a course where you're reading primary readings in American history, but they're not lined up chronologically. And so they make references to different events or, or or presidents, and you don't know who those presidents are. So you have no idea how the 20s are different than the 60s. So no wonder that a lot of times we completely give up on trying to have any context for the prophets except that one little verse. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, and I'm not saying that every Christian has to do this, but this is college. <laughs> and so I, I tell them all this at the start, and I say, if, if you want to change courses to take something that's going to be less historically demanding than this, you're not going to hurt my feelings, I understand. So then what we do is really not that complicated. We try to read the prophets as much as we can in order. And and instead of thinking of them the way we recite them, which becomes almost like a little rap song in a way, to learn them in terms of era, the uh, the, 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 the oral prophets and the rise of the prophetic movement, what I call the misfits, the three that have no context in them. Jonah, maybe Jonah, um, uh, uh, Obadiah, and Joel, and then look at them—eighth century, seventh century, sixth century—so that they rethink them that way. It's it's a it's a hard pull, and beyond that, I don't have a lot of bells and whistles to teach them. I put the texts up there. I try to um, you know tell the comparison, uh, the, the the parallel history and have some some other texts from historical books and some pictures and some charts, and we have a a fun quiz every week and a half or so so that they can start placing particular phrases or ideas um, to the profit. But uh, it's hard, and I think what's especially hard now is that at this point in the semester, they've had two tests, and none of the other assignments like a presentation a paper, other things that would help their grade more, aren't in yet, and so they're 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 scared. I think some of them and saying, I want to get my grade up, and how am I going to do this? So, I think what we're looking at the rest of the semester is finding other ways so that they can they can um, um, do better. I, I mean, not to be critical of my past uh, education, but I didn't come out of seminary knowing the history in, in a. Sort of a broad view way of the Old Testament prophetic movement in the eras, until I had to learn it for myself in other mm-hmm. venues, mm-hmm. and I think there too we we kind of buzz through chapter after chapter and and very quickly and then spend three days doing exegesis of this passage or that passage. Um, so anyway, I I have a lot of hobbies to write sure. in class.
0: <throat> so um, just for our listeners, um, you know we have. We have four major prophets, right? Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. That's how we, and then the twelve minor prophets. And the Hebrew Bible put all together, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so uh, maybe you want to just start with the four major prophets. There, I mean, where where do I where do we even begin? Maybe a historical, an historical sketch of each, just a couple lines, just to kind of give us some some touch points there.
1: Well, the first thing I do when we start out this semester is, is I, I look at the the English list of the Old Testament books, which came from the Septuagint, and how they're organized. And then I make some comparisons to the Hebrew organization. And so the first thing you notice for our purpose is that Daniel isn't in there, mm-hmm. and the difference between the the early and later prophets in the Hebrew Bible versus the sense of the prophets. And I said, I really like the biblical arrangement better, because I don't think the English arrangement does us any favors by putting about a 1,000 pages of poetry in between the prophets and the history in which mm-hmm. they worked. Mm-hmm. So we want to try to remove that a little bit. And then there's this unusual phenomenon, I think, that there's really no place in the Bible where you get an explanation for how the prophets ever even got started. They just sort of appear. Mm -hmm. In fact, the really embarrassing thing is that the first time the word prophet even shows up is when Abraham, for the second time, tries to pass his wife off as his sister, and God appears in a dream. To, was it Abimelech I think in Genesis 20 and says you put a finger on her you're a dead man because he's a prophet now how embarrassing is that mm-hmm. that God's got to intervene because of this scheme that you came up with and then he's called a prophet mm-hmm. but then you have Moses and he's a big one but then you have some of these unnamed prophets that come along in, in the early kingship and you have characters like Elijah and Elisha so I ask a bunch of questions as we go along? What do we can expect from the prophets as a whole? What's their message? Are they insiders or outsiders? And some are almost like cabinet positions Mm -hmm. and others are like like renegades, like like Elijah was. And are there ever, did the prophets get ecstatic experiences? And of course, unless we got a a Pentecostal in the room that's saying, yeah, yeah. They'll say, no, we don't believe that. And then I look at that story of Saul catching the spirit of prophecy, like it's a a bad word now, Mm -hmm. like a virus because he got too close. To try to give them a context. And then, um, so then I tell them too that when I was a kid, some Bible salesman came around and if we sold six Bibles, we'd get our own Bible. So all my relatives bought a Bible from me and I got a Bible and every Messianic passage had a star underneath it. I said, that would be very cool if it was that way, but it's not. And so we want to look at the context in which some of these really great prophecies come out and how they have one foot in the sometimes have one foot in the time in which the prophet is living and did the prophet even understand what the full implications mm-hmm. of his words mm-hmm. were and sometimes they had a second meaning way off in the future and i can really tell that even for the lutheran high school kids and the deeply religious catholic kids this is a whole new way of trying to look at all of this mm-hmm. and and if they don't you know i say to them i my exams aren't deliberately cumulative here the unit test but you're going to have to, mm-hmm. because there's so much we've done before.
0: Sure. So Isaiah, just tell me about Isaiah. What's he, who's he speaking to? What's his context, kind of?
1: Isaiah comes at the end of a string of other prophets in the um, in the mid to late eighth century BC, and the sense we get from Second Kings and from Amos and Hosea is that this was a time when some people were very well off. Mm-hmm. They uh, had a luxurious lifestyle. One of my favorite passages is where Amos scolds the wives of these rich guys and says, you cows of Bashan. You sit there with the poor outside your door and you could care less. You just rattle your glasses and say, bring me another drink, honey, wouldn't you? And so Amos has to come along and say, you are breaking this covenant which God made with us so long ago that when we are part of his people, we care for our neighbors. And God's patience is going to run out now when Amos and Hosea come along times are still good 750 or so BC and I said imagine when the economy is good that you go downtown right where all the bankers and stockbrokers walk by and stand there with a sign saying the end end is coming repent they're going to laugh at you Mm -hmm. but if we started having really big problems economically we're attacked we've got a famine things are really changing. So as the 8th century moves along, by the time Micah (coughs) comes along, um, things are getting more dire. Micah lived through when uh, 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 Assyria fell, Damascus fell to the Assyrians, and when uh, the northern kingdom fell. And then Isaiah comes along as the big message that's right in the middle of all this. Isaiah is involved telling the king of the north, don't make a covenant with Assyria. Uh, Just do nothing because God's going to intervene here. Ahaz screws that all up. He's standing on the wall in Jerusalem 701 when the Assyrians are all around the wall. And, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, the Assyrian generals are shouting at them, don't think your God is going to save you here. I said, this is really pretty dramatic okay. stuff. And we have the Assyrian account of the same thing that's going on. And all the stuff you see happening in the northern kingdom um, where the kingdom falls apart and... We sometimes get dramatic about our way of life being changed, but here's a case of where their way of life was changed forever. Mm-hmm. There never was a northern kingdom of Israel. There was never a strong Israelite presence in the land ever since. And then the real tragedy is that the South repeats the process. Mm-hmm. In fact, Ezekiel says he has this allegory of the two sisters, and the younger sister became you know, more promiscuous than the older one was. That's an astonishing statement. Mm-hmm. And then what was life was like in the exile, and then... Coming back. Yeah. Now, by that time of the semester, we're trying to get presentations in. They're trying mm-hmm. to get papers done. And by that time, I've got them so hopelessly confused, I'm afraid, that the, it, it kind of grinds to a halt in a way. <laughs> um, I love this stuff. And sometimes I have to remind myself, I love this stuff more than any of them ever yeah. will. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, Isaiah, what about Jared? You know, obviously, Daniel is in the exile, but Jeremiah and Ezekiel, I mean, w- w- how are they different than Isaiah historically? I mean, it's the same era, but uh, and w- how are they different? Um, well, uh, let me just say that one of the things about
1: Isaiah, just to make a comparison, is that he's got, of course, this majestic prophecy, and he has, I don't know Hebrew enough to be able to say that with conviction, but outstanding Hebrew poetry and all of the features of it and these lyrical prophecies that we know from the messiah and from our christian experience but you learn almost nothing about isaiah he's just uh, like many of the prophets he's transparent you see through him to the message jeremiah is the complete opposite he bleeds all over the page mm-hmm. he is sometimes angry with the people he's sometimes frustrated with god he tells god that god deceived him i never thought this job would be this way and he's really a very uh, sad figure in some ways for what he went through personally.
0: The weeping prophet.
1: The right. weeping prophet. And he and he, he says that sometimes, but he was strong as nails sometimes too. And then the part that really makes me sad about Jeremiah is that there was almost always, as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom fell apart, there was a pro-Egypt party mm-hmm. that said, let's go down to Egypt. Maybe if we sell ourselves to Egypt, we can stand up against Assyria. And the message always been, never go back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. That's where you were slaves. And so there was a group in Jerusalem that says, let's go back to Egypt. And Jeremiah says, don't do that. No. And Jeremiah makes it public and and, and says this very clearly. (coughs) It's God's will that the the Babylonians should come. So he's in trouble. He's thrown into a pit. Mm -hmm. He's hated and all this. So the Babylonians come, and they take over the area, send off captives. And they find out that Jeremiah was telling this to people, so they think he's on their side. And he says, I'm not on your side either. So the pro-Egypt party kidnaps Jeremiah and takes him to Egypt where he lives out his old age and dies. Mm -hmm. And I said to him, I tell you, if one of my grandkids becomes a Jehovah's Witness, that will be really a tragic day for me. But if they take me and have me buried from the Jehovah's Witness church, I mean, (laughs) I will feel so betrayed. What a terrible (laughs) thing. (coughs) And Jeremiah is very hard to find your way through chronologically Mm -hmm. it moves around and then it's got a little bit of comfort and then bam 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 and it's got about 15 chapters of judgments on the other nations Mm -hmm. and then he tells the fall of jerusalem a second time ezekiel is super organized and every one of his sections of prophecy is dated down to the day so you can tell right what's happening and ezekiel is the king of what i would call the performance prophets he goes downtown and sits every day with a little clay model of Jerusalem and lays there. And people on their way back and forth places, they look at him. You know, today we'd have TV reporters out there and they'd mm-hmm. be talking about the crazy prophet. Mm-hmm. And he tried to kind of engage people by being a little bit outlandish. A number of the prophets did that. Mm-hmm. They would, they did stuff we would never want to do in mm-hmm. a liturgical church service. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, just a just a historical note for those maybe not familiar. You talked about Egypt and and Babylon. And and when I'm quickly going through all of this in, in our intro to scripture, I, I draw the map of the ancient Near East and I say, there's always a power in the north and there's Egypt in the south and Israel's in the middle. Mm-hmm. And during this period, they're kind of trying to play both sides. And there's people that say, let's align with Egypt. Let's align with Assyria. And you see this with Josiah. You see this with Hezekiah, even the good kings. And uh, it, it is kind of a... The geopolitics of that is actually quite interesting when oh, it's you think about it. Yeah. yeah, and and just the the Fertile Crescent and and the trade routes and all that kind of stuff. And the and and if we were without the Bible, we would say, oh, and then there's this. By the way, there's this little thing called Israel in between these two mega powers, right? And they're important because just they live there, but they become the most important part of the story from the Bible's point of view. And it really is kind of fascinating where we have a inside view at geopolitics instead of what we normally look in history as the big, ge- here's Rome, here's Greece or whatever. And we don't look at it from the point of view of, I don't know, you know, uh, Galatia or, you know, Macedonia or whatever like that, these, these little players. So it is kind of, it's, it's a different way of looking at history.
1: Yeah. In the last couple of hundred years, historians and archeologists have found more stuff and, and the stuff that they found about the history and the politics works kind of symbiotically for the Bible because it, it on the one hand, it verifies so much more of the Bible for the skeptical reader. In other words, there will be people who will say, look, I don't know that we can pin down that this incident happened this way in the Bible, but the way it speaks is entirely consistent with what we know about that era. And it makes sense then out of what's happening in the Bible. And might makes right all the time so you know you've got this as a little kingdom down there and the story of isaiah or the story in isaiah about syria and the north going down to ahaz and says you align with us or else we will come and get you perfectly illustrates the problem that they had but if you chose to become a vassal to one of these big countries one thing is you have to pay money every year Uh a lot of money just for the privilege of not getting beat up. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you had to often show your loyalty by worshiping their gods in your temple. Mm-hmm. So of course, our, our prophets are all saying, don't do this. And when certain kings felt they had no alternative, they would go ahead and make this agreement. Then they're, then they're a vassal. But they're always watching to see, well, what would happen if I don't pay? What's mm-hmm. going to happen? So if, if the king of Assyria looks like he's getting old and somebody else... Rebelled against him and he didn't seem to do much. They're going to decide, well, maybe I won't send the money. Let's okay. see what happens. That's exactly what Hezekiah did. Yeah. He is a new king came in. He fortified the wall. He improved the water system. And he said, let's see what happens. And, and I tell students this. I really shouldn't tell them this. I get but I said one year I did this with the IRS. You know, I I sent in my taxes, but I owed some money, and I didn't send the money. Then I called the helpline to try to set up payments. Nobody answers at the IRS. So I thought, I'm just not going to pay and see what happens. And, uh, you know, so they sent me a bill about a month later with a little interest on I paid part of it and got another bill a couple months later little bit of interest. I thought, well, this isn't so bad. And by October, they wrote me one day and says, if you don't pay us in 10 days, we'll impound your bank account. <laughs> and I says, I'm not recommending this, but this is exactly what Hezekiah faced. And so here comes, here comes Assyria in 705, and they pound on every city along the mm-hmm. way. It's propaganda warfare. They want Jerusalem to say, we better pay. And we've got all this archaeological stuff from Lachish to illustrate this. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah's in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. And the whole prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ lies in the context of Isaiah saying to Ahaz, don't do anything. Don't ally with Egypt. Don't ally with the people up north. Don't become a vassal. Just sit here. I know you're a politician. It's hard to believe this, but God will give you a sign. Mm-hmm. Ahaz says, eh, I don't need a sign. <laughs> God says, I'll give you one whether you want or not. Mm-hmm. And that's, so, so what we think of as this, as this, you know, little passage with a star by it is embedded in all this history but how are you ever going to do this justice in a sermon you've bored you know you've you've had people you've lost them all by about five minutes and you want to go on for half an hour so you know i'll come back to this this is i know this is hard but this is college so and i gave you an out you didn't take it so here you are um so i find this very fascinating even though that's not my favorite part of old testament history yeah
0: yeah I mean, it is, it is fascinating that Israel is that political football and, and it doesn't end, right? I mean, when you look at the new Testament and you have King Herod, who, how is, how is he called King? Well, the Romans put him there, right? As a King. And then they get upset and they're finally going to put their guy Pilate, you know, eventually through all these things that there's, there's these powers that are going to set up quote unquote local vassals there. And, but they're not really, you know, there, there's still a power above the, the power. And, and I tell my kids you know briefly in in the intro to scripture is you know from from the exile so 586 or whatever and uh until after world war Two, the jewish people had indepe- complete independence for like what 150 years at best you know yeah. and you go do you kind of understand why this is important to understand the world today right? I mean, you have to, you have to understand this history. I mean, it really does have ramifications and, and the prophets are in the middle of that. So Daniel's a different kind of guy though. First, historically he's over in um, uh, Babylon during the exile, but what, what, what about Daniel for our listeners stands out? More apocalyptic maybe kind of thing. I mean, we're
1: Daniel (coughs) is, uh, well, first of all, if students go off to the library which, you know, doesn't happen that often
0: anymore. (laughs) We tell them there's this big building that has books in it. And,
1: you know, the librarian even rearranged the books up there so that the theology section would be right outside that little classroom up there, Mm -hmm. which was meant for theology. I could walk over and actually pull books off the shelf and bring them back into class. You know what
2: my big beef with the librarians, though, is I guess it's with the Dewey Decimal System. This theology is
1: BS. (laughs) Uh, well, there's there's some of that in there. I, I've yeah. told her, we need better we need letters. It turns out letters. to be an uncomfortable room because yeah. they never allowed for air circulation. But um, a lot of contemporary books say that Daniel was written about 165 in the middle of the Maccabean Revolt, and what appears to be prophecy isn't actually prophecy. So here's a case where you have to kind of undo um, some of the things that they might find there. But Daniel is a combination of It's kind of heroic stories where Daniel and the three men in the fiery furnace did not submit to what would have been easier and more popular to do with the Persians. And then the second six chapters are some of the most confusing apocalyptic prophecy to untangle anywhere in the Bible. And Daniel himself outlasted all of these Babylonian rulers. He gets kidnapped as a teenager and taken over there to be part of the civil service training. He lasts through Nebuchadnezzar and all the other declining Babylonian leaders and through Cyrus and into the next Persian leader. And so I say to them, how old do you think Daniel was when they, when they put him in the lion's den? Yeah, they're saying 17, 22, mm-hmm. big muscles. He's probably in his 80s. Mm-hmm. And some... Artists I see pictured as though the lines are down in a huh. lower den. Right. And yeah. there's a pit you could push. I says, you know, just push an eight year old guy out that hole. He's liable to break his hip and die down and I'm there. i falling and how, I can't get up. How, I says, you know, they even sometimes get not, let Nazis off at the end of their life in prison. <laughs> have some humanitarian. This is really cruel, you yeah. know. So you've got certain characters like Daniel and, and um, others, lesser characters that become very important in the... Uh, Um, intertestamental period for standing up. Then you got someone like Esther who seemed to do all the wrong stuff and yet she became queen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they had some problems so they tried to fix her. And yeah, so you're right exactly that you can understand Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans. They'd (coughs) really had it by then. Mm -hmm. And there was this this memory of the Maccabees being successful for a while. There's this growing sense of zealot desire to throw off the Romans mm-hmm. and um, Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate and they're all screaming for him and Pilate's so confused because he doesn't fit the the template at all
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so he says these are your people what have you done <laughs> and he says to them I'm I, my kingdom is not of this world and for the longest time I used to think he wasn't answering Pilate's question but he was mm-hmm. he wasn't the kind of king they wanted <laughs> they wanted someone that would come and kick the Romans out, and he was praising Gentiles yeah. for their faith. So it really all does hang together. And, and I get kind of going on this in class, and I look around and think, I wonder if anybody's with me on this or not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it is important. I, I try to, like, today's politics, I'll, This is it's not just from, you know, the last hundred years. It's not from the founding of America or even, like, you know, uh, the Reformation and the Renaissance. I mean, this is this is yeah. all of the world. We don't, you don't just get to undo, you don't just get to forget, collectively forget Egypt. You don't just get to f- collect, it, uh, forget, um, um, the, you know, the, the, the turmoil through the, uh, of the Jewish history, of the people of the Jews. You don't get to, you don't just get to forget, even Nebuchadnezzar and stuff like this. I mean, this is part of our, I even, I had heard this, I don't know how true this is, but, you know the the people are carried off into exile and they're in uh, Babylonian, so modern day Iraq and and I was told that there was a there there was a running synagogue from that time until two thousand three that finally closed or that there mm-hmm. was at least a synagogue when we invaded in the in the second Iraq War. Mm-hmm. I mean, just um, just imagine that, right? The
1: Babylonian Talmud was larger, if I recall, and more. Influential in many ways in the Jerusalem Talmud. World. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's, it's just a very complicated and fascinating story. And the and the the prophets, you know, who are not giving us a blow, blow, blow history, um, still give us some kind of the insight. I mean, that's it's the history by reading the literature of the time rather than the history books.
1: Yeah, you don't have the newspaper to read alongside right. the commentary in a way. And and I'll I'll say too. Now think about this. Every, those of you who go to church every Sunday. You hear a message, and the speaker begins by quoting something which is anywhere from two to three and a half thousand years old. Mm-hmm. Isn't that unusual? Yeah. We've gotten so used to it that we don't think twice about it, but you could go to other religious organizations where that's that's not done, or maybe it's done without any sense of real authority that it has. oh, well, this is interesting, little mm-hmm. tidbit and And so my big concern, and I, I complain about this a number of times is that we don't treat the Bible as though it is just a Bartlett's familiar quotations book. Mm-hmm. And I said, I have been very guilty of this, not so much with the Bible, but with other things. I even tell them, I know we're doing for time here, but I tell them, I says, you know, I look looking these, when I was younger, I look in these quote books and try to find something that would be grabbing. Mm-hmm. And one of them was um, a quote from Einstein. He says, God does not play cosmos with the universe. And I thought, oh, cool. You know, a dice
0: with the universe. Yeah, yeah, you
1: dice with the universe, right. You've seen it too. So I, I thought I could co opt this to say that God is actually, there's a God who's running the world. And I used that a number of times. And one time in chapel, after chapel, one of the science guys says, you know what Einstein really probably meant by that? And so this was wrong. You take a statement out of context, you know less than hardly anything about Einstein's life, and yet you invest the words with a whole level of meaning they don't have. How much do we do that with the Bible? Yeah way a way too much you know you can go to the the christian bookstores and buy all little plaques and things like this <laughs> that have a passage that isn't even talking about what the passage says Joshua. which is why i'm in major warfare with i know the plans i have for you mm-hmm. it's a great passage but if you don't know the context i don't think you should be allowed to use it this uh, day.
0: Do- Do- dr zimmer had a nice uh, uh, chapel uh, maybe a month and a half ago about uh, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Yes. yes I, I I, had a little, you know, we you get married and you have like three or four little things that have this on there, and I'm like, I don't want to put this up in my house, you know, I'm trying to explain to my wife the context of this or whatever, and it's a losing argument. Of yeah, course. well, the one I go on
1: about is the one where it says, the Lord watch between me and thee while we are apart, which is used all, in it's, it's fact, it has a name because of mitzvah the spot. Or
2: the, um, that mitzvah. Uh, yeah,
1: the, the, yeah, something that, yeah. Well, it, you know, it's, it's, it's something you use when you're going to see your, your, their children are going on a trip or something. It's a threat. <laughs> Laban said that as a threat to Jacob because he was going to come back and get Jacob for stealing his children and grandchildren, he thought. And he had a dream where God says, you lay a hand on him, you're over. Yeah. And so Laban says to him, I can't do anything because your God appeared, but the Lord watched between you and me and thee. Well, yeah, how, mitzvah pledge. so. Yeah, yeah, so how legitimate is it? For us to take you know to take the big body of the prophets and ignore almost all the context because it's just way too much work, mm-hmm. and then you add for like a conscientious preachers in Hebrew so you should try to work through the Hebrew mm-hmm. and just pull out these little pearls mm-hmm. and give them the meaning you it's, it's just it's just wrong, but it's really
0: hard work yeah yeah so um, this is kind of a silly
1: Wade, anything?
0: Yeah. I've just been, been paying attention.
2: Mike with 105 does Old Testament and uh the prophets and that. I with 110 do Genesis. Yeah. But uh it's been a while, huh? It's been a while since I've had to work with the prophets. Well, I and, know you like to see— in the like kind to... of sweeping survey that you guys are able to do. So I don't, I'm just in my head not trying to say the wrong thing because uh, yeah. I start, I don't want to start with Well, I know you up.
1: sometimes said, I like the New Testament because Jesus is in there. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just say, Jesus is in the Old Testament. Yeah, I know. That, but I also
2: like to tell them if the Old Testament was so good, why'd they— I'd gotta make a new one. You know, but I am joking, of course, Christ is in the Old Testament and that's the fun of, of but teaching hidden, the Old Testament. You know,
1: like Augustine said, he's hidden in
0: the old. Yeah.
1: Uh,
0: yeah. It's it's hard. I mean, I, I I don't I don't mind history, you know, and, and I think all three of us are kind of history buffs or that's an interest of ours. And so I tend to look at the Old Testament as history and 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 I love the symbolism of all of that. And I have to admit that I start getting starting getting to Jeremiah, you know, and I go can you, can we just end this and tell me what happens next? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well,
2: in the Hebrew is, uh, Hebrew's always been my weakest language and um, I can do the historical books. You can kind of learn the rhythm of the author and navigate the prophets. Uh, it's not easy going um, in a lot of them to try to get it. And especially with the minor prophets, you don't have enough from them to really get a sense for the Hebrew, you know, cause they're they're short so
0: so yeah yeah (laughs) well we've we've scared our listeners enough Um, what let's be a little bit positive here let's say there's just a regular person uh uh, not in in your class listening and say what would be a good entry into the prophets I mean you could go Jonah but Jonah's more of a story um you know what's a what's a minor prophet where you could read up a little bit of the history and and kind of say okay I get this I, I would read
1: Amos to start because Amos um has often been used by people who are frustrated with the uh the exploitation of the poor mm-hmm. and so it's often been latched onto by people who wanted the church sometimes but Christians people to make the world better social gospel so to speak and um and then from there I think I would read Micah also because he's got some of these great passages um again, about about what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to walk honestly. And I would hit some of the high points of Isaiah, and I would probably go to Habakkuk, because Habakkuk, anybody who's shaking their fist at the sky and said, why don't you do something if you're almighty? How can you put up with this? And that was Habakkuk's complaint. And then the solution that God offers is even worse, and, and where <laughs> is God in all this? Um but that's a good question, and I can understand why. I mean, really, unless you have a reason like we've had to have to learn this well enough to teach it, and then you get excited, how do you as the average busy pastor yeah. spend any time with that?
0: Yeah, let alone the layman. Yeah, yeah. 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 It is hard, and um, but uh, it. And then to find Christ in there, though, I mean, it's it's kind of like there's certain authors. For me, C.S. Lewis is like this: you got to read, 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 read and read and read and read and read. And 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 I I actually don't like his writing very much. But then there's this jewel that you find. There's this gem. And uh, you know, poetry is hard to read in any language, especially something that's a translation of a different different language. But you get to Isaiah seven, you get to Isaiah eleven, you get to some of these great ones, and 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 it's like. It was worth it, right? It was worth yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, You find this gem there, and uh, and then you start to appreciate the context around it. But
1: sometimes it's a gem to us also because we can hear the Messiah or hear this. <laughs> now, when you have students who don't have any of that in their memory yeah. bank, then it's yeah. all unfamiliar.
0: To yeah, them. and you gotta. So you do need to put the stars by the passages. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it helped me. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. So. But
1: and then to find out they weren't really there.
0: <laughs> yeah. Not, not in the Masoretic text. That would no, have been nice. no, no. That was some later scribe <laughs> that put that in there. If we can call him that, yeah. So, well, thank you. You got anything else, uh, Wade? You got or do you want? No, to it was helpful. I
1: spent
2: a fair amount of time googling to make sure I was tracking what you were talking about in case you <laughs> <laughs> asked me a question on the spot. So it's good stuff. Well, very good. Well, so, you know,
1: there's a modern. Just to give you a modern sure. thing, I mean, this—it's <coughs> always a tension to want to be popular as a preacher and be entertaining and tell people what they want to hear. So you get to Jeremiah, and <coughs> He's complaining about the false prophets. What they're doing is just saying to people, nothing bad can happen to you because, you know, you're God's people. You have the temple. And remember 100 years ago when the Assyrians were down here and uh, Isaiah promised the city isn't going to fall? Don't worry about it. So Jeremiah goes right to the steps of the temple. He says, you trust in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And um, and then the, the, the first wave of captives is taken off to, to Babylon. So all the all the fun prophets i think one of his name is Gedaliah the fun prophets say oh don't even unpack your bags you're not going to stay very long you have to throw your god's people so that's the context which jeremiah gives this space, famous passage where he says settle down yeah. plant plant you know grow vineyards plant farms build houses find wives for your your husbands for your wives i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans to harm uh, prosper you not to harm you but not right away yeah and then it says that after all this was said and and, and then Jeremiah says oh yeah one thing more a year from now you'll be dead and it just very quietly says in the sixth month of that year Gedaliah the prophet died (laughs) so there are these these you know sort of affirmations of what the prophet says that the Lord stood behind them sometimes but I would also say we've had debates sometimes here about whether we should judge preachers by their popularity and by the numbers you know serious people People, I shouldn't say they're serious people. They are people seriously saying, "Let's pay missionaries by the head. The more people they bring (laughs) in, give them a bonus." And I said Jeremiah would never make it through. He did everything faithfully, and his numbers were terrible. So don't judge. (laughs) I mean, he's a real messenger of the theology of the cross. That you don't measure people by their success, but absolutely. And he was told that at the front end. That was what he got with his call letter. People are going to hate you for it. You're going to have to tear things off. Isn't he the one?
2: You better have a big forehead because
1: stuff's going to have to bounce right off him. Well, maybe that might have been Isaiah. One of them has has a phrase like that, yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on, and I hope the students can – Uh, be refreshed in this and uh, keep their studies up during this weird situation where we have to go to online learning so and we hope that the greater audience will benefit from it as well and so come back and, and listen to another one until then let the bird fly